Luke chapter 2. This is the Christmas story in July. So maybe it'll give you a different perspective on it. I think we always bring all these ideas to the Christmas story. Maybe hearing it at a different time might help us to unpack some of those ideas. Verse 1, chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. So Rome is now essentially turned into an empire, no longer a republic. The dude over it uh, takes this name, the, the, the awesome one essentially, Augustus. That all the world should be registered. Entire Roman Empire, right? From Spain to just about India. This whole thing is going to be registered. What a crazy task. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. If you read the Bible, and I recommend it, what you see is God uses governments and empires like Legos to get what he wants. Whether it's Egypt and Pharaoh, where God just says, I'm going to use Egypt to show my power to the Egyptian people. Whether it's Babylon, I'm going to use Babylon to discipline my people. And the fascinating thing about Babylon is this. God says for 70 years, they're going to go into Babylon. Guess how long Babylon was an empire? 70 years, if you remember from Daniel. So it was God raised up Babylon to do the job God had wanted done. And when God was done with Babylon, it's Medo-Persians now. God uses empires like Legos. That Ephesians 1.10 said he works everything after the counsel of his own will. He has a plan and he'll use governments to get that plan done. And his plan stretches all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The proto-evangelium, the very first mention of the gospel. I don't actually think it is the first mention of the gospel. I think it's chapter two, uh, where Adam essentially dies, pierced in his side. Out of his side comes a rib and is birthed a bride, which to me is a perfect picture of what happens to Jesus on the cross. But that's a whole other story. Genesis 3.15, God says, From the seed of the woman, there's coming one who will crush the serpent's head. 
That's the first mention of the good news. So all the way back there, we know this is a unique birth, right? Women don't have seeds. So this is a virgin birth. Hard to believe, isn't it? Most of us know how babies get here, and that's hard to believe. When I talk to people on this, I tell them this. You will believe in a virgin birth. You'll either A, believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, or B, you will believe in the virgin birth of the universe. It's one of those two. Which one's harder? That nothing created everything that we see here. That to me is much harder to believe. But that is the science of today, that nothing creates everything. Never been seen before, never happened in history, but somehow nothing creates everything. So Jesus, this thing stretches back, right? It stretches back. So God now is using the entire Roman Empire to move Joseph and Mary a hundred miles south because Micah 5.2 says, out of Bethlehem will come a ruler. Have you read Micah 5.2 recently? Let me read it for you. It's pretty fascinating. This written four, five hundred years before Jesus, it says this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Here's the crazy thing. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. What did that just say? There's going to be this ruler that's born in Bethlehem, but he's actually existed forever. Right? That's a crazy prophecy. So God now is using... Rome, the entire Roman government, to move Jesus, his birth, to Bethlehem. Bad government, bad thing. A census, you know why they took censuses? Power and money. The two things governments really care about, power and money. How many people do we have to fight a war, and how much money do we have so I can pad my wallet, right? So uses this bad government with a bad plan for something really, really good because you can't stop God. Rome, the most powerful empire, could not stop God's plan. It would go forward. Now, if you've read Luke chapter 2 and commentaries, the critical kind, they'll say Luke made a mistake right here because in verse 2 it says, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And they reference Josephus. Josephus says that his reign was actually from 6 or so AD until whenever. So it would be too late. Well, the more we've learned, he actually had two reigns. One of them kind of coincides pretty well. But the other thing is this. If you have a Bible that has any kind of notes in it, it will say this, before he was governor of Syria. So the Greek is very like, it's actually before he was a governor. 
The more Luke has studied, the more this book has found to be profoundly accurate. It's amazing to me. Think if you were tasked with this job. Write a biography of JFK. Using all the books that we have, all the resources, Wikipedia, Google, whatever, and you wrote a biography and you gave that biography to professional historians, would they tear you apart? Oh man, totally. Yet Luke, for almost 2,000 years, has stood the test of time. Over and over, he's been proved to be right. So Mary, 15 years old now, great with child, has to travel a hundred miles. Ladies, if you are great with child and you had to walk a hundred miles, would you just denounce your faith then? You know, I don't believe anymore. God, this is not a plan for me. I'm out. Well, maybe she was riding a donkey. Is that better? When you're great with child, how many times do you have to go to the bathroom? Right? Get off the donkey, go pee. Right? Five minutes later, get off the donkey, go pee. Get off the donkey. I mean, you would not, it'd be easier just to walk than to ride a donkey. I mean, this is insane, right? And when they get there, do they have a nice Airbnb set up for them? Mm-hmm. They're in a cave, right? They would have been in a cave. That's where they would have gone. And I always wonder when I read this, if, if my 15-year-old daughter needed to walk 100 miles when she was pregnant, I'd be there with her. Where's mom and dad? You know where they're at? They disowned them. That's why I never hear about them. Because there's a mistake. And back in these culture, it was family. You kept the family name pure. So now they're all alone, walking, riding a donkey, whatever it is. How hard is that? Married people, you ever gone on a road trip with your spouse? You ever want to murder them in your heart? (laughs) Only in your heart, right? You got all that right here. I mean, this is a difficult trek. So they get down there, they get to this cave, and verse 7 says, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Who normally would wrap the baby in swaddling cloths? Midwife. Guess what she did not have? A midwife. They're all by themselves in a new town, in a cave. She is the original teen mom, right? I wouldn't trust a 15-year-old with an iPhone. And God's entrusting himself to be raised by a 15-year-old. It's insanity to me, (laughs) right? This is hard. This is hard. But I tell my kids all the time, hard's not bad. Hard's not bad. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad. An ancient reader of this text would have said, what? Because what royalty always did was pad their past, right? They made it seem even better than it actually was. Jesus's birth is made worse than they could ever imagine. Like, what in the world? What kind of royalty is this? This would shock them. Are you kidding? So verse eight. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. 
and the glory of the Lord shone round them. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those whom he is well pleased. You got these angels show up. Why do angels show up like this? It's telling us something. Where do angels normally live? Heaven. This is telling us that the, there's an overlap right here, right? There's like the sphere of God and the sphere of heaven, and then there's the sphere of earth, and right here, there's a little bit of an overlap. Like the veil between heaven and earth grew so thin at this point that you could see through it, and they could see angels. Which if you know anything about the idea of the temple, the temple was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. It was the place that God existed, if you would, with man. His presence was manifest. Heaven and earth overlapped. The veil grew thin. That's what's being said right here. Because Jesus is the ultimate heaven and earth overlap, is he not? 100% God, 100% man. The veil's gone. We can see through now. He's here. That's why John in his gospel says he came and he tabernacled among us. That word tabernacle is to make your mind go all the way back to the wilderness wanderings when they went around and they had this big tent. And inside the tent, there was this place called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God's visible, tangible kavod, his glory could be felt. The overlap of heaven and earth happened right there. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that. Angels, boom, the veil's gone in this moment. It's brilliant. And so these shepherds are like, whoa, they're in a field. Probably not December 25th, because that's really cold. So you wouldn't be out in the field. It'd be better, July 31st might be a better day. We're maybe reading it on a better day. They'd be in fields right about now. They could be the temple Shepherds, because the temple required these sheep that were without blemish, these lambs that were without blemish, so they could be, because of the proximity, they could be those shepherds, I don't know. So when was Jesus born then? Why do we celebrate December 25th? About 150 AD, the church fathers were like, hey, when was Jesus born? They had no idea. Well, we've got a one in 365 chance of getting it right. Let's just get a calendar and throw a dart at it. They didn't know. But there was this celebration throughout the Roman Empire 
And it was a celebration of the unconquerable sun. And it was always on the shortest day of the year that they would say, hey, this day forward, every day gets longer. Every day gets brighter. Every day gets better. And so it was a celebration that they had. And so these church leaders were like, that's Jesus. Jesus brought in a new kingdom. The invasion started with his birth. Why don't we celebrate the truly unconquerable son on that day? And so they just began to celebrate it that way. Some people get mad at that. I love it. I think it's perfect. With Jesus, every day does get brighter. He is the unconquerable son. Why not? So that's why we have that day. And it says that he was going to be born a savior. Why was he born a savior? Because we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. What do we need to be rescued from? Who says sin? I would say yes and no. Yeah, sin. But if you think about it, didn't the Old Testament give us a way to be safe from our sins? Didn't God put in place sacrifices and confession? Didn't he? Doesn't Psalm 19.7 say, the law of the Lord, the Torah of Yahweh is perfect, converting the soul. It does. So it seems like if you just do what the Old Testament tells you to do, you're good. But the Old Testament testifies, yeah, that's not going to happen. Right? You look, you read the Torah very carefully. It's crafted, it's brilliant, it's beautiful. The law comes down from Sinai. And what happens? The moment it comes down, they were already breaking it. And Moses gets mad and crushes the tablets, right? And then goes out and gets more. And if you keep reading through Exodus, and Numbers especially, what you find is there's this cycle. The law gets broken and God gives more laws. And then the law gets broken and then God gets more laws. And the law gets broken and God gives more laws. It's God saying, I'm going to try to temper this thing in you until the Savior comes. But Galatians 3 would say, it's not going to do it for you. And then Jesus comes. He actually makes it much harder, does he not? Because there was this group of people who believed we keep all the law. And they did. They were pretty good at it, called Pharisees. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, on chapter 5, says, okay, you've kept the law, great. But if you've been angry at your brother without a cause, you've murdered him. Everyone that drove 6th Street today is a mass murderer. (laughs) If you've looked upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. He makes it way harder. It's not just the outward action that matters. It's actually the very movement of your soul toward evil that matters. Ooh, that's harder. And at the end of chapter five, Jesus just says this, be perfect 
as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anyone struggle with that command? Anyone like, no, I got that one. That's no problem. Right? Jesus is making something really clear here. You need a Savior. Jesus came to save us from ourselves. Our inability to be good, our inability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder and be better. He came to save us from us. We can't do it. Because we're broken really early. Have you noticed that? If you have kids, you realize the brokenness doesn't start like when you're a teenager. It starts much earlier than that. One of my sons, when he was two years old, he would do this thing, we called it the face rake. If he didn't get whatever he wanted, it was he would grab his fingers and just go down your face and lips, eyelids, whatever, just raw. Now, where did he learn that from? If Charity, my wife, gets the last scoop of ice cream, I'm not like, raw, you, right? Where did he get this? Man, rebellion is bound in the heart of a child. It's just, it's there, that seed. The serpent has wrapped itself around the human heart and injects poison in it from the time we're born. We need to be saved from ourselves. And so the Bible says you throw yourself at the foot of the cross and you say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. We need to be saved. And Jesus is that savior. So verse 15, when the angels went away, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. If you ever had a dog that isn't that bright, we had one, her name was Chloe, golden retriever, very nice dog, but just not that high on the intelligence scale. I would try to teach her to fetch. And so I'd point my finger, fetch. And guess what she would do? Lick my finger. I'm like, stop it. Fetch. Lick, 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 right? She would look at my finger instead of what you're supposed to fetch. The Bible has this way of like pointing at things. And sometimes we're like dogs and we miss it. And one of the ways is the repetition of terms. So as I've been reading this, the word manger has come up three different times. And that's one of those, hey, look, 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 look. Why? Because it's not normal. And we have these nativity scenes where we have these beautiful little ornate mangers that are made of cedar, and they have this fluffy little piece of cotton in it, and little baby Jesus is in it, right? That's not the manger. It would have been made out of stone. They're in a cave, And the manger, the feeding trough, 
would have been made out of stone. Have you ever been around a spot where animals eat? It's as nasty as it gets, isn't it? There's manure, it's muddy, it's gross, it's dirty, it's nasty. All of that 2,000 years ago, before they had nativity scenes, before we have this cleansed kind of scene, they'd have been like, ooh, a baby in there? Ha, gross, right? She didn't have a Carter's newborn starter kit either, (laughs) right? It would wrap him up in his beautiful little blanket. It's rags. She's wrapped in rags and put in a dog bowl, right? Why? Because the shepherds would know, oh, that's true. That's not normal. Normally, babies are not in caves, put in a feeding trough around all kinds of manure. That's not normal. It'd be like today, finding a family in a dumpster that had just given birth and had wrapped their baby in a newspaper. We'd be like, what in the world? That's this idea. Like, are you kidding me? This is not glorious. The beginnings are not glorious. This is a weird biography for 2,000 years ago for someone who claims to be God, right? You'd always pad your statistics, make it better than it was. This is worse. It's Philippians 2, the kenosis, the emptying, that Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be one with God, yet made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in likeness as a man, went through hard hard things. He emptied himself. He did not take the easy way. In fact, he took the hardest way I think you could. So verse 22, or he's circumcised. Do you need to be circumcised today? No. No. Good answer. You can if you want. Galatians 2, 3 makes it yes, no. Titus, a Gentile convert, Paul did not feel like he needed to be circumcised. Timothy, though, on the other hand, Acts chapter 16, he circumcises. Just seemed like whatever was going to be best to bring the gospel. And 3,000 years ago, it was a sanitary thing. Like, that it was important to do. Today, not so much because we have access to much more sanitary conditions. And it's interesting that it says the eighth day. You probably know this, but uh, people that have studied this have found that babies... Uh, their, their ability to clot blood because of certain components of the blood reaches its highest at the eighth day. Pretty amazing. Because you want to do circumcision as young as possible. You don't want to wait till like 15 years of age, right? You want to do it as young as possible, but you don't want a baby to bleed to death. And it seems like the proper day is the eighth day. Pretty amazing that they got this right thousands and thousands of years ago kind of seems like God knows. So verse 22, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem. His name was Simeon. 
And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what he said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So in the Torah, God says, all life is mine. And the firstborn of an animal would be offered back to God. It's a way of acknowledging all life is mine, but not humans. Instead, there is a substitute made for the firstborn human, a turtle dove or a lamb. But that was going to change, wasn't it? Because this firstborn would be offered up. So all that is wrapped in this little story. They use a turtle dove instead of a lamb, probably a dime, a quarter, because they were so poor. Like dirt, poor. The story gets worse and worse, harder and harder. Why does Jesus grow up poor? So he could be a faithful high priest. So he would know, right? Everyone has like things they want to complain about, like life was hard, whatever. God, Jesus would say, God in the flesh would say, yeah, I know. I know what it's like to get your underwear from Goodwill. I know what it's like. I grew up like that. I'm a faithful high priest. I can understand. And so Simeon shows up and somehow it says that he knew from the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Messiah. I read that. And I think, well, how did he know that? Right? The Bible doesn't answer the questions that I often want answered. Like I would know, love to know how Simeon knew through the Holy Spirit that this was going to happen. Like how did that work? I'd love for verse 26 to say, so Simeon, on August 21st, wearing a brown camel skin garment, went up upon the mountain and fasted for 10 days. And on the 11th day, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and made great revelation to him. Wouldn't you love that? What would we all do then? August 21st, we'd all have our brown camel skins. We'd go up on a mountain, try to fast for 10 days, see if we could make it. We'd try to copy. That's why the Bible doesn't do it. 
because this was his life to live. This was his way of following Yahweh. And what happens too often is we want to eat other people's fruit instead of planting and watering and growing our own orchards, which is much harder. But which one's better? You plant, you grow your own orchard. You pursue Jesus on your own. Yes, we learn from community, no doubt, but it's never a formula. It's always a walk of faith. It's always that. So we don't get the answers because they would actually hurt us. And then he turns to Mary. We already talked about this a couple weeks ago when I did that overview. He turns to Mary and he blesses her. How does he bless her? Ooh, hey, sweetie, this is gonna be hard on you. This is gonna pierce your heart. This baby is gonna stomp on your feelings. See you later. Imagine up here if I did a baby dedication, I did that same thing. Oh, sweetie, man, this, heart's gonna, this baby is gonna hurt you. It's gonna be a bummer. It's gonna be super hard. No one would get their baby dedicated anymore, right? Like, ah, I don't like that. It's true, though. True, she's starting to get more. I'm treasuring these things up in my heart. Oh, really? Is there anything harder than watching your child suffer? I can't imagine it. We all, what all, every parent would say, I'll take that. Let me take that instead. Yeah, her heart was gonna be pierced. And then it says that there was gonna be the revealing of hearts because of the ministry of Jesus. Do you know that God knows your heart? It's kind of a sobering thing, isn't it? So when you're talking to yourself, God knows that. When you're in a car and you're talking to yourself and somebody sees you, so you act like you're on your phone or whatever, <laughs> God knows those things. God knows exactly what we're thinking. He knows them. Do you know that computers are getting close enough to start figuring that out? This week, there was an article done on this. It's called Scan to Text, where they can scan the brain now, and it's made for handicapped people. They can, that, don't, that can't communicate because of something. And it can scan their brain, and as it's scanning their brain, it just starts to write out what the brain is thinking. How freaky is that, right? Good luck lying to the jury. We don't even need a jury anymore. Just put the, put the helmet on him. Ah, that's what you're thinking. Okay. I mean, it's insane. Yeesh. The good news is this. He knows our hearts but he can forgive us and change our hearts. That's why he's our savior. What the law could not do, it's done through Jesus. That the heart of stone, Ezekiel would say, will be pulled out of you and you'll be given a heart of flesh. That Jeremiah says, on that heart of flesh, God will write his Torah. He'll write it on the very tablet of your heart. To verse 36. And there was a prophetess. Anna, the daughter of Phinuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. No one's sure about the math there. Could be she's 84, or actually could be she's like 104. And she did not depart from the temple, 
worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So here you have these two people. They're not your typical churchgoer, are they? Simeon reminds me of like a sandwich board dude with a blowhorn out on 6 and G. Anna's like the tambourine lady. She's, you know, okay. They see Jesus while the pros don't. There's Levites there. There's pastors there. There's scribes there. There's Pharisees there. The pros just see a baby. These two see Jesus. It's humbling to me. It means I should be really w- willing to listen to people that normally I might discount. Like, ah, oh, well, who knows? The Spirit's like the wind. He speaks through people that you and I would not expect, the Simeons and the Annas. And we should begin to learn to have ears to hear how God is speaking through his body, through people that we wouldn't think he could, your kids, your spouse. Learn to listen. So they return, verse 38, and they move. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So Nazareth, what's the town to to try to compare it to? Whenever I use a local town, I get emails. People are mad. I grew up there. Why are you making fun of my town? I'm not. Everyone knows it's that way. Sorry. Right? (laughs) Come on. I'm just self in the room. All right? So, okay. Nathaniel says this about Nazareth. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like that's the reputation of Nazareth. I'll just say this. Can anything good come from Portland? It'd be like that. Okay, that's far enough away. We can mock Portland maybe. So it's like the the worst town you can imagine, that's where Jesus grows up, there. In fact, next to that town, when Charity and I were there a couple years ago, there's this about 3.7 miles away, there's this town called uh, Sepphoris. And it had this giant pagan temple in it built when Jesus was growing up. Most people think Joseph, his job as a carpenter, would have been going over there and building that because that's the only work that was around at that time. It's fascinating. So it just gets worse and worse, right? You move to that town? Why would you move to that town? Ah, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? 
and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So there's the feast. This is a Torah-observant family. The law says three times a year you're to gather up men and you're to go down to Jerusalem and you're to get together and you're to celebrate. It's a command. You know why? Because men will make excuses not to do it. I got a project. You know, I'm really working on this thing right now. I got to repaint my house. I got to reshoot my camel. I can't make it. So God made it a law. No, you will get together. You will have a good time. You'll have fun. It's the law. I command it or I will kill you. Party or die, right? I love that. I think sometimes we need those commands. Go enjoy yourself for crying out loud. Unplug from the daily rhythm, right? That's why the Sabbath is so key to the Torah. Unplug. Don't be doing, just be one time a week. Remind yourself that your value is not what you accomplish. Your value is you're an image bearer of God. So it's that whole idea, right? So Jesus is 12 years old. This is right about the time of a bar mitzvah where essentially parents are saying, all right, for 12 years, we've been responsible for you. We've paid for every broken window you've made. We've paid for, you know, all of your stuff. We've, all right, you're 12 now though, or 13. Now it's time for you to be responsible. I think that's a great plan. Right at the teenage years, it's just brilliant. I'm like, that is awesome. <laughs> Sign me up for that, right? So he's 12, they're caravanning home and in it would be a group of people that would be caravanning together and they'd be all the towns north. They'd just be splitting off as they went. So it'd be a massive group. And they're just assuming Jesus is with his 12-year-old buddies doing what 12-year-olds do, right? Dirt clod fights, bugs in jars, making them fight, whatever it was, right? So there's no problem. But they wake up after the first day and they're like, Jesus didn't come home last night. Man, he's taking this bar mitzvah thing too far. Come on. I mean, you're not that free. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and so they start asking around, like all of his friends, like, where's Jesus? Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen him. Are you kidding? And they're like, oh, no. They have to turn around, leave the safety of this caravan, now by themselves go a day back, and either it's three days in the city or one, ex- one more day, they look for him, and they finally found him after three days. How would you feel if you were Joseph and Mary. Right? We call the FBI if our kids are missing for 30 minutes. He's gone for three days, and they're like, goodness, we'd almost be home right now. And they say, she says this, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you. And what's his response? I'll be about my father's business. These are the first recorded words of Jesus. I'm going to be about my father's business. But then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He submits to his parents. 
Most teens think they know more than their parents. Jesus actually did. (laughs) And what does he do? I'll submit. Honor your father and mother. It's the first command with a promise that it may go well with you. And I don't think it's an accident that verse 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He honors and it goes well with him. Why does the Bible command us to honor our mom and dad? Because it's hard. A lot of people have hurt from mom and dad. Some way a mom failed you, some way a dad failed you, didn't hug you enough, didn't tell you you were great enough, didn't whatever, right? Failed your mom, whatever it was. And so there can build up in us animosity. My dad was never around. He's just gone. Never a part of my life. I remember writing him letter after letter after letter after letter and never getting one back. And so that can start built like, ugh, and you don't honor anymore. And it damages you. At the end of the day, it actually damages you. So I was talking yesterday about forgiveness. And the way I think about forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is a door in your heart. There's just one door. There's not two forgiveness doors. There's not, hey, a door of forgiveness where it's God forgives me through this door, and then there's another door where I open it and then I forgive other people. That's not what forgiveness is. So Jesus in Matthew 5, 14 and 15, he says this. Listen, if you don't forgive people, the Father won't forgive you. He's saying the door in your heart, there's one door of forgiveness. And if you are slamming that door shut because you're mad at your parents or you're mad at somebody and you won't forgive them, you're slamming the forgiveness door shut. And God is standing outside the door saying, man, I want to bestow on you all the blessings of forgiveness. But you're slamming the one forgiveness door shut. And then you feel the shame and the guilt and the heaviness and the bitterness. It just starts to just boil over on you. And so what Jesus is saying is, You actually open that door of forgiveness by forgiving. And in and out of that one door flows forgiveness. And when you learn that secret, oh, there's a weight taken off of you. And God's shalom and his goodness and the bitterness and the shame that you feel are erased and taken away from you. That's why. Honor your mom and dad. It'll go well with you. Open that door. Let forgiveness, the two-way doorway of forgiveness, flow. Jesus understood that. I'll submit and I'll honor. Some of you, and I talked to some of you, need to open that door of forgiveness. And what you'll find is there is a peace that happens in your heart that's miraculous because you forgive. And now you're enjoying all the brilliant benefits of the Father's forgiveness. Father, today, we thank you that your son is the faithful high priest. That you did not take the easy way. You weren't born in a castle with a silver spoon. 
but you became like us in every way. We're grateful for your example. We pray that the gospel of Luke would shape us in a way that we look more like you. Honoring moms and dads. Maybe that failed, maybe that didn't understood, maybe that made mistakes, but we still honor them. That we keep that brilliant door of forgiveness open where we get to enjoy the fruit, where we get to enjoy the peace, where we get set free from the boomerang of bitterness that only hurts us. I pray for any in here tonight who have unforgiveness towards somebody. I pray that by your spirit, you would empower them to forgive and have that weight taken off, have that tape recorded that they play over and over and over, just have it erased so they're set free, so they could grow in favor before you and before men. And I pray this in your name. Amen.